Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 16 on April 23rd, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For more information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Dr. Kevin Hutton, chairman of the Medevac Foundation International. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from episode 15 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I still do not have a response from the RSS program that I use to publish the Air Medical Today news and information from Twitter onto the Facebook page regarding the issue of their grouping of my posts. In the meantime, I am posting directly to Facebook as I do for Twitter, so there is no current delay. Remember, all the posts are also visible on the RSS blog tab on the Facebook page if you are having any difficulties. I use a different RSS program for that tab, however, and it does tend to be much slower in posting up entries. I did not receive any feedback on episode 15, but do hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Hayden Newton on the UK Air Medical System and their Association of Air Ambulances. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file or note to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have any suggestions for future guests. As I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email or call me if it is not. I have been trying to identify all aeromedical and critical care transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. I did post up two new pages this week. I cannot link Facebook group pages, and therefore, if you are thinking of putting your program on Facebook, do use a fan page rather than a group. One of the most important reasons is that you can obtain a unique URL or website address once you have 25 fans. This makes it much easier to provide someone your Facebook page and for them to find you. Contact me if you have any questions about this. As I have mentioned, I'm going to be rolling out a sponsorship program for the Air Medical Today podcast this month. I'm looking for both corporate and individual sponsors, so watch for announcements and a new page on the Air Med Today website. To continue with the news and information and podcasts, I will need financial support. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. 
The big news this week continues to be the volcano eruption in Iceland. Ash from Iceland's volcano continued to keep European airspace shut down last weekend into this week. This has affected millions of travelers around the world, and some government agencies and airlines have clashed over the flight bans. Restricted airspace began to open up earlier this week, and some flights were being allowed. Airlines also pushed for the ability to judge safety conditions themselves. While the volcano continues to rumble and hurl ash skyward, it is at a slightly diminished rate now. The ash plume has dropped closer to the ground, however, causing the World Health Organization to issue a health warning to Europeans with respiratory conditions. In the show notes is an article titled The Big Picture from Boston.com that you have to open and view the pictures. They are absolutely incredible shots taken in Iceland of the volcano. The eruption in Iceland has triggered an intense effort to improve our ability to detect volcanic ash clouds and forecast their movement in the atmosphere. Eruptions are surprisingly common, and more precise information about them could help reduce uncertainty about the threats they pose to air travel. Satellites now use infrared data, which means they can track clouds even in the dark, and they do a pretty good job of mapping the size and shape of the cloud, too. They can even determine its height within a mile or so, but seeing inside the clouds or below them is still a big challenge. There is another way to get at this information, though, and it is called the Calypso satellite developed by NASA. It can measure particles in the atmosphere using a technology called LIDAR, or light detection and ranging. LIDAR provides very detailed information, but it can only look straight down, so therefore can only see thin slices of an ash cloud, and only during the brief periods when the satellite is directly overhead. Part of the challenge is pulling all this information together, whether it's from weather satellites, volcano observatories on the ground, and science instruments in orbit. Wind and forecasts are critical, too. It is is not enough to know where the cloud is at any given instant. Winds blow in different directions at different altitudes, so forecasters need to know a plume's exact altitude to predict its movement. It would ultimately be nice to know what a safe concentration of ash would be for an aircraft, and that is also not known. This was the cause of some of the issues between the airlines and the regulatory bodies. There were several articles about the UK air medical providers also being grounded and then slowly coming back into service this week. The National Transportation Safety Board will be holding a three-day safety forum on professionalism in aviation beginning Tuesday, May 18th. The NTSB's investigations into the mid-air collision over the Hudson River last August, the crash of the Colgan Air Flight 3407 in February 2009, and the October 2009 Northwest pilots' overflight of their intended airport provided the impetus for the forum. All of them clearly demonstrated the hazards to aviation safety when pilots and air traffic controllers depart from standard operating procedures and established best practices. Panelists participating in the forum will represent industry, government agencies, labor and academia, and aviation trade associations. 
A technical panel comprised of NTSB staff from the offices of aviation safety and research and engineering and the NTS board members will question the panelists. Dr. Tony Kern, an internationally recognized human factors and pilot performance expert, will speak. The names of the other panelists and the agenda will be released in early May. The forum is titled Professionalism in Aviation, Ensuring Excellence in Pilot and Air Traffic Controllers Performance, will be held at the NTSB's Boardroom and Conference Center located in Washington, D.C., the public can view the forum in person or live on the NTSB's website at www.ntsb.gov. New computers crucial to modernizing the U.S. air traffic control system have run into serious problems and may not be fully operational by the end of this year when the current system is supposed to be replaced, according to a government watchdog. The $2.1 billion computer system has misidentified aircraft and had trouble processing radar information, according to Calvin Scoville, the Transportation Department's Inspector General. Air traffic controllers at a Federal Aviation Administration radar center in Salt Lake City, where the new computers are being tested, also have had difficulty transferring responsibility for planes to other controllers. Scoville warned that if the problems continue, they could delay the FAA's next-gen program to replace the current air traffic control system, which is based on World War II-era radar technology, with the new system that is based on GPS technology. The troubled computer system called En Route Automation Modernization, or ERAM, is designed to handle aircraft flying at higher altitudes between airports rather than planes taking off or landing. While not specifically part of the next-gen program, it is a critical underpinning. The FAA had planned to have ERAM operational in Salt Lake City by December 2009 and at the agency's 20 other radar centers that handle on-route traffic by the end of this year. That's when the FAA's contract with IBM to maintain the present computer system expires. The present system relies on a unique computer language called Jovial that is understood by a dwindling number of technicians. FAA officials are concerned about the ERAM transition at larger, more complex radar centers like Chicago and New York. Newfoundland and Labrador's health minister, Jerome Kennedy, said he was moved by what he heard at a public forum that hundreds of people attended at the Labrador City Meeting Hall this week. Almost 500 people filled a scout lodge with another 250 people listening in outside on an FM transmitter. Stories range from a shortage of medical specialists to a lack of equipment to harrowing waits for air ambulances. Kennedy said the government is sticking by decision announced earlier this month to move an air ambulance from St. Anthony to Happy Valley, Goose Bay. After a Transport Accident Investigation Commission report on an incident involving a lifelight Metroliner which skidded off the runway in New Plymouth Airport in New Zealand last March 2009, the Civil Aviation Authority, or CAA, is urging pilots and airline operators to report all air accidents as soon as possible, even if they seem to be minor. 
No one was injured in the mishap, but the chief commissioner, Bill Jeffries, says the aircraft operator, Air Work, took several days to inform the CAA about the incident. By that time, data on the cockpit voice recorder had been wiped, which hampered the investigation. The CAA will be launching a campaign to inform pilots of their responsibilities under the law. Air Methods Corporation recently delivered the first medically equipped Bell 429 helicopter to Mercy One, one of its hospital-based services customers based in Des Moines, Iowa. Air Methods Products Division is the first in the world to design, engineer, manufacture, and certify a medical interior for the Bell 429 helicopter. The 429 interior can accommodate a single, dual, or specialty transport, and the roll-on, fold-up litter system loads through the aft clamshell doors. Combined with the large cabin, the medical interior design allows for full-body access to optimize patient care. Air Methods Products Division also designs, engineers, and manufactures and certifies medical interiors for the Bell 407 helicopter and the Eurocopter EC-145, EC-135, EC-130, and AS-350 helicopter airframes. An air ambulance charity that collected more than 750,000 pounds has not been able to land a helicopter in Ireland. The Ireland Air Ambulance has been changed from an unincorporated organization to a company limited by guarantee and is now set to be registered with the Charities Commission Northern Ireland in the coming months. Last year, the BBC revealed that 90% of the money collected by the charity in its first year went to wages and overhead. Recent accounts show it has only £65,000 left of all the funds collected over the past two years. When people gave to the charity, they did not expect that up to 90% of their donations were going to pay for staff costs. The sales staff were paid on commission based on the amount of money that they raised, and such tactics in fundraising for charity is highly questionable. The Ireland Air Ambulance has gone through the formal process of dissolution, and its existing trustees, director, and some employees have all left. The charity is now being run by a new board of eight directors drawn from the business community who want to move the aims of the charity forward. A new interim chief executive has been appointed, and the remaining assets will be transferred to a new company, which will retain the name Ireland Air Ambulance. This week, Surrey County, North Carolina Board of Commissioners approved the Surrey County Emergency Services to enter into a contract with Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center to base a helicopter at the Elkin Airport. Baptist had first approached the county about basing an air care helicopter in Elkin, and the new county contract with Baptist will include hiring four Surrey County paramedics, with Baptist funding all salaries, benefits, insurance, uniforms, training, medical director oversight, and administrative costs. The county will invoice Baptist monthly to receive payment to cover costs. The helicopter will be staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by a registered nurse, a pilot, and a Surrey County paramedic. The medics will be trained by AirCare, and they will rotate between ground transport with Surrey EMS and the Air Medical Service. Baptist hopes to be ready to have the helicopter stationed at Elkin as early as May 1st if all goes well with the contract. 
Lifeline Critical Care Transport has purchased a new Eurocopter EC-145 helicopter to replace its aging fleet. The ship flew into the Indianapolis downtown heliport this week to offer the media the ability to view the new aircraft. Lifeline celebrated its 30th anniversary in 2009 with over 32,000 flights. Since its inaugural flight in 1979 with one helicopter based in Indianapolis, the fleet has grown to include five helicopters, three mobile intensive care ground ambulances, and one King Air 90 airplane. Lifeline has six bases located in Indianapolis, Lafayette, Muncie, Columbus, Kokomo, and Terre Haute, Indiana. In Minnesota, a LifeLink 3 medical helicopter that is now based at the Alexandria Municipal Airport was relocated from St. Cloud Airport on April 21st. LifeLink 3's medical helicopter will be available for transport 24-7. It is staffed by a registered nurse, a paramedic, and an EMS pilot. LifeLink 3 completes over 20,000 transports annually in its helicopter, ground, and airplane divisions. LifeLink 3 employs over 200 people at corporate, ground, dispatch, and fixed-wing operations in Minneapolis and additional helicopter bases in Blaine, Hibbing, and Hutchinson, Minnesota, and Rice Lake, Wisconsin, with an additional ground and 911 base in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin. LifeLink 3 is a not-for-profit consortium owned by Alina Hospitals and Clinics, Children's Hospitals and Clinics of Minnesota, Fairview Health Services, Hennepin County Medical Center, Regions Hospital, Sacred Heart Hospital of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, St. Cloud Hospital, CentraCare Health System, St. Luke's, and St. Mary's Medical Center. Eagle Med will open a new base in Liberal, Kansas at the end of May. The new base will operate one King Air B-200 turboprop airplane and have 12 employees, including nurses, emergency medical technicians, and pilots. The air base will use the Liberal Mid-America Regional Airport. Eagle Med will work with Southwest Medical Center, Seward County Emergency Management Services, and the surrounding county's other health care providers. The company started by Jim and Iva Ballard is an Air Medical Group Holdings subsidiary. Maui, Hawaii Mayor Charmian Taveras said she's found the money needed to fund the air ambulance program for the upcoming fiscal year. As reported in a previous podcast, Taveras initially proposed removing the program from the county's budget. But that was before the county's finance department determined real property taxes would generate nearly $235,000 more than originally expected. Tavares wants to use that money plus $437,000 from the county's emergency fund to reach the $672,000 needed to keep the air ambulance program flying. The mayor said she had hoped that the State Department of Health and Maui Memorial Medical Center would come forward to pay for the service. Tavares is urging them to include the full funding necessary for the service in their own budgets in the future. Large budget cuts in New Jersey have not affected the purchase of 145 new vehicles and five new medical helicopters for the state police. The $12.5 million helicopters to be delivered starting next February will replace older ones, almost two decades old, which are slated to be sold. The Australian 
Nursing Federation says it is concerned that experienced Northern Territory flight nurses may be lost due to a change in the provider of aeromedical services. CareFlight is taking over the service for six months starting in July of this year and has advertised for nurses to work on a contract basis. Flight nurses are currently employed by the health department, and a spokesman said applications for leave without pay will be approved if nurses want to apply for these contracts. But the Federation's secretary, Yvonne Falkich, said flight nurses are being offered less wages under the CareFlight program to perform exactly the same duties. This story has been covered in two previous podcasts, and it looks like it will continue for some time. Despite their conservative approach to new systems and procedures, more and more hospitals are discovering how social media can engage them with both the public and their patients. According to a just-released white paper, hospital communications directors are using Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube to communicate in a crisis, share some good news, or just plain connect. Jane Sherwin, owner of World Drive Communications, is the author of the white paper called Social Media for Hospitals and Healthcare Organizations. According to one source, 600 hospitals in the United States, or about 10% of all U.S. hospitals, were reporting use of some form of social media. This represents a nearly 11% increase in hospitals reporting from November 2009. Ms. Sherwin said that healthcare organizations may worry about negative comments on their Facebook page, but it's going to be said anyway. With social media like Facebook, you have a chance to spot the complaint quickly and respond to it before it gets spread in online and print media. Sherwin cautioned about using social media as advertising. They are not designed to sell products, but to connect and inform the wider community. As more air medical programs use social media, this white paper will provide some good background information, and there is a link in the show notes. Also, please listen to my interview with Lee Ossie in Episode 6 about how the Mayo Clinic is effectively using social media, or as I like to call it, new media. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Kevin Hutton, chairman of the Medevac Foundation International. Kevin Hutton is a practicing, board-certified emergency physician and the founder, CEO, and chairman of Golden Hour Data Systems Incorporated. He began his career in 1980 as an ambulance driver, then progressed into becoming an academic emergency physician, flight physician, aeromedical researcher, operational medical director, and the San Diego County EMS System Quality Assurance Committee chairman. Dr. Hutton is recognized for his expertise in teaching, clinical research, privacy and compliance management, medical transport reimbursement, and the application of integrated information systems to transport medicine. He is a founding and past board member of the Air Medical Physician Association, past secretary and board member of the Association of Air Medical Services, and the current chairman of the Medevac Foundation International. In 2006, Kevin was recognized as a finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for his creation and growth of Golden Hour Data Systems. 
He founded and grew Golden Hour, a company with 160 employees that provides air medical and ground transport services, including integrated computer-aided dispatch, transfer center integration, clinical charting, quality assurance, billing, collections, and data analytics. This is all done via Internet based on Software as a Service, or SAAS, throughout the United States. Dr. Hutton has been awarded several U.S. patents on these technologic innovations. Kevin was also the recipient of the Marriott Carlson Award in 2008. This is the air medical industry's highest award for individuals' contribution to the air medical community. He has been an invited speaker both nationally and internationally on medical transport reimbursement, medical transport research, and has been an advisor to the Japanese in the financing of their HEMNET Air Medical Network. Dr. Hutton is also the medical director of the Cat K Medical Clinic in the Bahamas and is a volunteer physician with the Aeromedicos Bush Pilots that operate a medical clinic in the Baja, California. Kevin has two sons, age 20 and 17, and lives in Del Mar, California. He enjoys sailing, snowboarding, and carpentry. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin, and thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. Uh, You're welcome, Ed. Looking forward to it. Well, Kevin, if you could first tell our listeners about some of the early history of uh, the different foundations, and I'm speaking specifically about the Foundation for Air Medical Research, or FAR, and then the Ames Foundation, and why they came together to form the Foundation for Air Medical Research and Education, or FAIR. Okay, that's a great question. Um, I don't know exactly when FAR was initiated, the Foundation of Air Medical Research, but I got involved with it around 1995 uh, timeframe, and I was a recipient of one of the grants that that foundation uh, put out. Um, and FAR was uh, initiated by the industry um, to start funding research projects, and it did a pretty good job of funding small research projects, but didn't really have the ability to raise lots of money to be able to fund larger research projects and fund projects that were done by um, more classic uh, PhD and uh, uh, higher type researchers. So uh, FAR was uh, doing uh, pretty good, but didn't have the really that ability. And the Ames Foundation was uh, needed to be able to fund um, Ames projects under a charitable realm. And when they came together, Ames had the ability to raise money, but did not have the uh, the big research mission that most people thought of uh, was uh, as needed for doing. Um, uh, for raising money. It was the more altruistic mission. And so it made sense for them to come together, and there were several attempts to try to get them together. Um, early on, it didn't uh, go very well, and then uh, the second attempt, we were successful, and when we joined the Ames Foundation to the um, Foundation of uh, Air Medical Research, we rebranded at that time as the Foundation of Air Medical Research and Education, or FAIR. Uh, and FAIR was when I uh, got involved, and uh, there was a previous uh, chair of FAIR was Christine Zoller, and Christine was uh, instrumental in getting everything organized, getting the relationships with uh, the Association of Air Medical Service established, uh, and then also uh, strategic planning 
to uh, move towards um, uh, organizing the foundation and raising more money and uh, developing uh, programs within the foundation. And so I got involved about a year after that and um, have been in, uh, instrumental in some of the growth that's happened once we became FAIR and now uh, rebranded as the Medevac Foundation in 2009. Mm -hmm. And what was specifically behind the name change uh, to the Medevac Foundation International from FAIR? Well, FAIR was uh, chosen more for politically correct reasons because we were joining um, uh, the mission of FAR with a uh, trade associations foundation. Uh, and so we wanted to keep the name fairly close. We wanted to be able to to transfer and, and, and articulate our mission at the time. Uh, but as we grew, it became very clear that FAIR was very difficult to articulate to potential donors. It didn't ring with the public as well as Medevac uh, Foundation did. Uh, and it also did not necessarily uh, ring well with the international community, which we were trying to embrace um, with the foundation's work. So we did a fairly extensive branding exercise uh, and came up with uh, several uh, terms that then got whittled down to three terms or three different names. And finally, we came upon uh, the Medevac Foundation International um, with uh, Medevac spelled with a capital E in the middle. Uh, and that name uh, was adopted a year ago, June. And we quickly went through a, a branding um, uh, program, and by AMTC, we were uh, we were the Medevac Foundation. I see. And going back just a, a step, and I know you've mentioned this, but I wanted to make sure our listeners knew, <clears throat> FAIR was more involved in research funding and the Ames Foundation and educational and other projects. Now with FAIR and, and then Medevac Foundation International, you're doing all those things. That's correct. And that was one of the reasons why we joined uh, together was FAR was doing okay funding smaller projects. I think the project that I got funded for was about $5,000 uh, back in 1994 or something like that. Um, and the Ames Foundation had not been able to really effectively raise money because they were raising money for education, which was also their uh, their the association's mission. So it was difficult for them to raise money, although they had the capability within the foundation group, the Ames Foundation group, to do that. Um, by joining them, we really had a very good mission, research mission to raise money, but we also linked it with education. So we had both research projects and educational projects that we began to fund as FAIR. And um, once we, uh, we started to do that, we put out some priorities and we really started funding much bigger projects and much more research uh, under FAIR than we'd ever done, I think, in the entire history of FAR. Um, we funded, I think, at this point, about $600,000 in uh, research and education projects alone. We also took on these outreach projects uh, that we couldn't really do under FAR, um, under FAIR. Uh, and I'm sorry about all the acronyms back and forth. <laughs> but, uh, and I hope I get them all correct. <laughs> Isn't there fines involved too? If you're there, you're there is as part of our branding effort. We uh, we first we charged a dollar when you uh, used the wrong name, and now it's up to ten dollars. <laughs> so many of us have had to chip in ten dollars. 
So uh, it's a progressive penalty. At any rate, um, we have several outreach programs, too, that we've managed to develop. So I know you're going to ask me about those, so I won't get ahead. Well, talk about the relationship, too, uh, with the Association of Aeromedical Services. Uh, well, when we uh, combined, we uh, combined um, uh, and we are, were attaching now as uh, a name changed Ames Foundation. In other words, we are still uh, legally the Ames Foundation. So we are uh, what I call linked at the hip. Um, and Ames is uh, very involved in terms of uh, uh, reviewing our annual um, areas where we're interested in, uh, in having research performed. Um, we are um, linked through two board members uh, that are in common with the Ames board. Uh, we meet uh, together, but also separate and meet separately um, because our board's a little bit has evolved to be a little bit different than uh, than the Ames board. Um, so we're still very much linked intellectually. We're very much linked in some of our programs. Uh, we're definitely doing uh, the, uh, and paying for some of the good work that Ames is doing through the that can be paid for under a charitable realm or charitable funding. Um, and I think the other thing we're doing is just supporting the overall mission of the association by uh, putting out uh, white papers and things like that that support uh, the air medical and critical care ground transport industries. Right. Well, we'll talk about the, the mission and vision of the Medevac Foundation International. Well, we're very, like I said, we're very aligned with AIMS, so our mission and, and vision is, is parallel to uh, the associations. I think the big the divergence is, is that we're also there to support other worldwide organizations that are similar to AIMS. AIMS, uh, you know, is a trade association which, though it has international members, is fairly focused in its programs uh, domestically. Uh, and so the foundation really found an opening to be able to collaborate with uh, with EHAC and uh, ISIS and some of these other uh, um, international organizations that are also wanting to fund research uh, and education and, and to develop um, ability to fundraise within their own uh, communities to fund uh, additional research, although they have certainly tapped into our uh, research funds as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the projects that are funded by the foundation, because I know there's many. Um, first off, let's talk about some of the research that is funded and uh, how an individual or a group submits a request. <clears throat> That's a great question. Um, we have a, a research granting cycle, and our grants committee um, of the foundation really handles any money going out um, that's within programs. Um, and under grants, there's several other committees that are specific to uh, the specific program. So there's a, uh, a grants committee that has several well-known researchers on it that form um, the core of that committee. Russ McDonald is uh, um, from Orange is one of the, uh, is the chairman of that committee now, although Cheryl Erler had served in that role for many, many years. And publicly, I want to thank Cheryl for all of her efforts there. Um, um, she, the grants committee looks at a send a list of research priorities 
um, every year, uh, updates that list, and then submits it. A lot of times those grant, grant priorities are based on what's currently needed. Um, a few years, uh, last couple of years, we've needed safety research, for uh, instance, and so we have directed um, research dollars to safety. Uh, this w uh, was something we were uh, uh, very interested in making sure the NTSB was aware of last year. Um, we've done a ton of research related to safety. We also wanted to do research in time-dependent uh, care areas, um, such as uh, cardiac and stroke and uh, neonatal, as well as uh, trauma, although there's been a lot of work already done in trauma. And thirdly, I think the thing we wanted to be able to fund was projects that could lead to more projects. Uh, and so we funded the core CCT project that Steve Thomas um, from Oklahoma put together, and uh, that project now has spurned, I think, seven papers uh, that have been published um, uh, through this collaborative research uh, data gathering um, mechanism that Stephen built. Um, and so uh, I think the foundation's really, uh, from the research side, focused on you know the medical necessity of time-dependent care and safety, as well as some other projects that we've uh, you know done, and some of them are early investigator projects, projects that are you know designed uh, to to report specific things or to develop something. Um, we've also done a ton of education projects, and uh, these also were related to the um, the priorities. Um, we funded the uh, HEMS um, um, helicopter shopping tool, uh, the weather tool. Um, we funded projects on uh, everything from uh, dunker training at AMTC, um, water you know egress training, and, and uh, also um, um, training for. Uh, flight physicians on aviation issues um, so that they could understand um, those that side of things a little bit more. So really we've done a ton of education projects. Uh, safety stories is the one we're doing right now. We're funding a lot of Ira Blumen's safety research um, with his uh, OSI HEMS project. Um, so the foundation's really spent uh, quite a bit of effort getting its uh, research funding uh, priorities together and getting the money out to these researchers. And now, you know, three years later is about when you start seeing the, the papers coming out. And indeed, we've seen a, a couple of papers published now uh, from those early research efforts. And um, so that's been really a good thing. Is, the, is there um, a piece put out? Two folks, like you say, safety has been a recent one, uh, that these are the papers that you're interested in? This is the type of research or projects you're right. interested in? Is that put out in advance? It is. It's available mm -hmm. on the uh, Medevac Foundation webpage, um, uh, which you can link it through the AIMS.org website as well. Um, and you can also donate on that website. Um, but that website has the uh, priorities there, and it also has the application for the research grants. Um, we typically uh, take in the research grants uh, by the end of January. Uh, and we go through an exhaustive review process, uh, which involves um, uh, reviewers that have to go through a screening process to make sure that they're not biased, uh, they're not submitting a grant. Mm -hmm. One of the problems we ran into early was that we're a fairly small uh, gene pool, as Dan Hankins likes to say. <laughs> and so the grant committee was submitting grants, and so we'd have very few people to be able to evaluate the grants. So we had to reach out and get a broader audience and develop a conflict management process um, and uh, so we've also reached out to our international colleagues, and we have several of them 
on our grants committee now as well to evaluate projects that are coming from other parts of the world. Well, you had a big announcement uh, this week on transcranial ultrasound. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, this is a game changer study. I really am very impressed with with what the uh, the the uh, conclude the um, possible conclusion of this work would be. Uh, Tilo Hoschler is a, a German doctor who's been uh, working at UCSD now in their uh, neurosciences neuroradiology uh, laboratory, uh, and he is uh, an expert in ultrasound and its use. Uh, uh, as a diagnostic and treatment tool in, in a, a acute embolic stroke, um, and so the idea here, and to simplify it for the for your uh, podcast uh, uh, use, uh, listeners, um, this study uses um, a, a type of ultrasound which is fairly routine, places it on the temple of, of someone's uh, skull, and uh, can go through using color flow Doppler and look and see if there is a blockage in, in an artery, um, and you know they can localize that blockage. Um, they do that with both color flow Doppler, but they use um, micro air bubbles. These are, are inert gas bubbles that uh, has been used for many years um, as a contrast media for ultrasound, but this makes it visible through the bone to be able to see the the uh, vessels within the circle of Willis, the vessels that distribute blood to the whole brain. Mm -hmm. And so when one of those vessels is blocked off, like the middle cerebral artery, it literally looks like a spider with one leg missing. So it's easy to do, easy to train. And once you've identified this, you basically localize the ultrasound on that area and those little micro bubbles now become agitated, and it's the equivalent of taking high-energy basketballs and knocking them at a, uh, a beaver dam, which is the clot, and it breaks the clot up and allows flow to be reestablished. So you're not only going to be able to diagnose, but you're going to be able to treat stroke in the field. And this is a study that we, um, we funded um, a year ago, and it's been underway in Regensburg, Germany. Um, we had to do this in a, a – we couldn't do this in the U.S. because ultrasound, first off, isn't used widely enough. And it also is not uh, – it's typically a procedure that's done by physicians right now, although the training of transcranial ultrasound, Tilo has told me that uh, he, can, he trains medical students to do it all the time. So it, it is not that complex to do these studies. Um, and literally, you just keep the probe on the temple, and it keeps the clot from re, uh, reforming. And so it has the potential to re, uh, uh, um, circulate, uh, to get circulation reestablished up to 90 minutes earlier in a stroke, which this is just huge because it, it also doesn't preclude you from doing the standard stroke treatment, which, you know, would be a CAT scan, an MRI you know, uh, maybe thrombolytic therapy or an invasive procedure, you know, a neuroinvasive procedure to go out and remove the clot. So it's a temporizing procedure that allows flow to be reestablished. And he showed me a video of them breaking up a, a clot that had been established for 18 hours uh, and having a flow. And this was in an experimental model. And you see that video and you're just, wow, this is game changer. It really is going to mean uh, a lot to uh, stroke victims to be able to take a, a, a device out to the field and then initiate therapy and cause some revascularization of, uh, of an area that's been uh, deprived of oxygen or ischemic. I see. Would this be used by ground EMS personnel and uh, you know, community hospitals where, where someone first comes in? 
I think it absolutely can be, but the mm-hmm. key thing is, is it's got to be used continuously until you get to definitive treatment. Because just just like any blood clot, it'll if you stop, you know, wiping the bloody scrape you've got, uh, it's going to clot up. And so it, it you really do need to keep agitating it because you're not breaking up the platelets; you're breaking up the clotting factors and kind of the sludge that makes up the the beaver dam, you know, the clot. Um, and so it doesn't completely remove the, the structure of what, where the clot's formed. Um, and so, you know, you do have to, it is, it is a temporizing procedure, but one that has a potential that, you know, certainly ground ambulance could use it. But I think with the cost of ultrasound devices, you're going to put this in helicopters much sooner than you're going to in a ground ambulance. And perhaps the geography uh, is, you know, is going to dictate here that the helicopter is the way to, to deploy this because you could... You know, it used to be the, the argument of how many ambulances did you need to call the, cover the same area as a helicopter. Well, these are you know twenty five thousand dollar ultrasound machines. They're not they're not inexpensive. So I think uh, you're probably going to deploy this in helicopters until it's pretty well you know understood uh, the, the benefits and the and if there's any problems. And that's one of the things we still don't know is whether it, it creates any problems. We don't think it's going to create any problems to downstream therapy. We don't think it's going to cause any problems with hemorrhagic stroke, um, but these are certainly areas that we have to have to study. Um, so the study is being done in Regensburg, Germany. I'm actually going to be visiting the study site and talking to the principal investigator um, May 7th and 8th, um, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing it actually in action. But the 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 idea is just phenomenal, and that's when they're making the formal announcement too, right? On May seventh, yeah, that's correct. And Kevin, I think this goes along with you know we've been saying for I think the last few years now that you know stroke is something uh, that is a, a time uh, event and it's appropriate for helicopter usage. This further. Uh, verifies that, correct? That, that is absolutely correct. I think stroke is probably the most time-critical um, entity that you can run into. And, and um, you know, we, we get so many times we get a stroke victim who's had, you know, six, eight hours of, uh, of ischemia and is, you know, it, the muscles, you know, the, the brain is dead and there's just nothing you can do about it. And, in fact, revascularization uh, at that point is, is, is really... Um, uh, not not indicated after six after four and a half hours in most cases, um, and so we're looking at trying to get more patients within the window of when we can do things. And you know, if you think about stroke, you know, my physician side, stroke isn't something that that takes your life, but it is something that takes your life away um, mm-hmm. because it changes your life so dramatically, um, and you're so debilitated, and you're you know you end up having so many complications down the road that. Uh, it, it really is something that intermedical and transport and, and um, ultrasound really has a, a huge uh, potential impact. I wanted to add one more thing about this study. This study was the first study we had that uh, was funded actually from a European source. Um, uh, Pavel Mueller, who's on our board uh, through his company Alpha Helicopters, um, uh, stimulated research by a $100,000 donation um, specifically to start yeah, getting research done in, in Europe. Um, and so this was the first grant to come out of that uh, donation. Yeah, that that's excellent. Well, we'll be uh, interesting to hear uh, more about that on, on May 7th. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned uh, the education projects. So I won't go into those again, but how, how do those uh, get 
funded, or how do you find out about them? Do people <clears throat> submit requests, or are these things it's, that uh, the foundation wants to fund? There's a much more abbreviated uh, application form, and these are done in conjunction with the research projects. It's the same cycle, so June, and then um, projects are reviewed in, uh, or they're distributed in June. They're they're put in in January, um, and so December. I think the end of January is our due date. Although Russ. Uh, was changing that cycle, but it'll be available on the web page. But I'm okay. pretty sure it starts in January. Okay. We always are getting people, the nature of the business, who put in a project a couple of days late. And, you know, we, we've been uh, uh, lenient in the past, but we really had to tighten that up because people are needing to follow instructions and it does affect our process. Right. Well, talk about um, the public education projects because that varies a little bit. Um, and, Talk about what are some of these projects and um, how they differ from regular education projects. Right. Um, there are certain projects that are uh, decided by the board to be outside the grant process. Um, one of oh. the biggest projects we uh, did outside the grant process was the uh, white paper, um, the accessing um, uh, air medicine, accessing uh, the future of healthcare. Um, and this white paper has been translated into 10 languages. It's been uh, very popular uh, at, for countries that are developing air medical resources. Um, we actually earmarked uh, the, the languages we translated it in based on the potential markets that we thought some of our major donors were interested in and that they were telling us they were interested in. Um, but we uh, did a very large paper. It's about 40 pages, extremely well referenced. Um, this was done under the FAIR uh, logo, um, although we're going to be updating it with more resources, uh, more references, as well as up, more up-to-date information, and then rebranding it to Medevac Foundation. Uh, that's our biggest public education. We've actually submitted that to every member of Congress, um, uh, a whole lot of other uh, uh, media resources, um, all of our donors. Um, it's been out to every program director, I think, in the country. So that was example number one. The other thing we were involved with um, uh, in terms of public education is uh, we are um, uh, in, have been involved with the public relations efforts that uh, the association has done through Cindy Price. Um, and so we've got some public education from that perspective. And then lastly, uh, we did fund outside the grant process um, uh, the HEMS Industry Risk Profile, um, which uh, we weren't involved with the creation of it. We agreed to get it to do the actual printing and distribution um, along with the Flight Safety Foundation. So um, that was another example of a project that went outside that uh, the uh, typical granting process. I see. And those those are things that are discussed at the board and say we need to, to support these items. Yes, mm -hmm. it is. And then the, the other thing that we did was a uh, a, uh, uh, a annotated bibliography of safety-related research. We put that out as an RFP, uh, and uh, it's being uh, completed now. It should be ready by AMTC. Okay. You also have what are called general support programs. What exactly are these? Um, well, general support it typically uh, is there for um, managing the the, the, the uh, administrative functions of the uh, foundation. We have two employees and a volunteer board. Uh, Amber Bullington is our managing uh, director. Uh, she reports to Don Mancuso at Ames, uh, and then uh, Leanna. Um, 
Jackson is our new fundraising officer, uh, and she's been a great addition that we just took on um, right before uh, the beginning of the, uh, the new year. And she has really uh, been able to um, capitalize on a bunch of uh, uh, follow-up donations and, and, uh, and cultivated some new ones and brought a ton of in- energy to our group. So, um, Leanna, those two are our are, are are the foundation in terms of the regular employees, um, and so the general administrative funds typically go to there, and that's where some of that funding goes to. And um, we also buy services through a management services agreement through uh, the association for, for example, uh, public relations or communications, um, things like that. The other things we do, we we're uh, funding the uh, on the fly newsletter. Um, which was yes. a mm-hmm. uh, bibliography clipping service. Um, so there was some other public education there and industry education. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Don Mancuso is the executive director of the foundation. That's, that's right. Yeah. She helps us keep the, the, the foundation and the association aligned. And, and Don is um, a great resource uh, in terms of our uh, um board structure and keeping our boards uh, board um, meetings on uh, you know together we've uh, slowly but surely ad- uh, uh, adjusted the way we meet um, because our board composition has changed a little bit from where it was at the beginning um, and so we've we Don has been involved with helping us uh, um, uh, do that as well as some of the strategic planning that the foundation needed to do that was separate from um, the association right Let's talk about. There's some other projects I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, one is the that has been in the news uh, lately is the Family Grant Fund, and this is for family members of crew lost in air medical crashes. Tell us about the history of this fund and specifics of uh, how grants are made to families. Well, it, when we were first starting the uh, the uh, getting fair going, we we um had Dustin Duncan was on our board and he had been in contact with uh, some victims of crashes in particular uh, Stacy Friedman um, whose uh, sister Aaron Reed lost her life in one of the crashes up in um, in Washington state um, and uh, so Stacy and and Dustin brought this to our attention and we uh, jumped on it and said you know we need to get this this uh, uh, funded um, and we need to be able to, to give some money to these crews immediately we, we figured what well, we realized Realized is um, in those first couple of days after a crash, um, these people are really their whole lives are, are uh, disrupted, and they're trying to put memorial services together and get family into town and things like that. And so we developed a immediate uh, fund that would go to the to uh, um, the crash victims' uh, families, um, really no questions asked, and we give them uh, a couple of thousand dollars to get their their affairs started. Uh, And it also opens the door for us to be able to um, uh, come back to them with uh, other services that uh, that, uh, that aid in the grief process or help them better understand, um, uh, you know, the mission and some of the things, because oftentimes they don't understand why their loved one really you know, did this mission and 
Uh, and so the, it, it's, an, it's, it's a fund that really, uh, we just, we really thought this was something we had to do and we had to do it quick. And, uh, Stacy was really helpful in us initially establishing it. Dustin's carried the torch since then. And Steve Sweeney's also, uh, from the Air Medical Memorial has helped us, uh, joined us to be the, uh, uh, vice chair of that, of that subcommittee. Um, so we've got a lot of good people behind it. And so far we've had to, uh, activate it three times. Uh, and we've um, been pretty successful. We definitely it's been a learning process. Uh, it's it's a delicate thing to contact families after a crash is what we've learned. And so we're we're getting better at it every time. Mm-hmm. And, well, it's a it's a great program. And I know from, you know, working with Stacy and Dustin, uh, this, this is great that the foundation has taken this on. How many grants have been uh, made since the inception? You said uh, three different crashes. I mean, is, um, is it a certain amount of money each time and, uh, or can you explain how that works? Yeah, it is a certain amount of money. We've had to be a little careful that we, uh, because we had such a bad year in 2008, we were modeling on 2008. Um, and this is a fund that, um, it was largely funded uh, by Stacy Friedman and myself, and then we've also taken in uh, quite a bit of funds. It's a, it's a very popular fund, um, uh, and crew members have been donating for this under mm-hmm. a, a given hour campaign, uh, giving an hour of your salary once a month uh, or once a year, uh, and that's uh, that's how we funded that. Um, so we've had to keep the amount we give uh, to a reasonable amount until we knew that we weren't going to exhaust the fund uh, in a in a single year. Um, we looked into other ways of funding this through insurance vehicles and things like that, and none of it made sense. Um, and so we give about $3,000 per uh, family, um, and we try to do that within the first uh, week after a crash. Um, there are a couple of pieces of paper that we have to deal with, get signed, um, and we do require that the uh, provider uh, have a uh, a uh, post injury uh, post accident plan um, in place uh, that includes family assistance, um, and so we're encouraging family assistance through that. And it is uh, also uh, right now limited to Ames members. Okay. A related project is the Children's Scholarship Fund, uh, which is for children of crew members lost in crashes, so to assist with their college expenses. Um, was this an outgrowth of the family grant fund, or was this developed separately? It really actually was developed for the before the family grant fund, um, and uh, it came. One of our donors came to us. Uh, it's EMS SkyConnect came to us and uh, said they really talked to one of their clients and they wanted to donate uh, and establish something that would give back to the families who'd lost their lives. And uh, so it it uh, it quickly gained momentum, and uh, we were able to uh, to get it in place. Actually, um, we got it in place before we had the family grant fund in place um and we were able to give our first uh um grant last year at amtc uh to uh, joshua godding who is the son of one of the nurses who crashed in uh that was worked for reach uh, a few years ago and jonathan's a sophomore at uc santa barbara studying medicine a really good kid mm-hmm. are there requirements for this grant kevin or can any child of a lost crew member apply? 
Yeah, any child can uh, apply for it that's uh, from a lost crew member, and I think we've even extended that to, uh, to uh, you know, Perry family uh, people as well. We have some specific rules that are on the webpage related to that. Um, it is not necessarily um, uh, uh, needs-based, although that's something we do take into account when we're looking at multiple applications. I see. I, I was going to ask you that, so that's good to yeah. know. And that's one. It's one of two scholarships that we formed. Um, we also formed the MTLI scholarship, the Medical Transport Leadership Institute scholarship, and it was kind of a similar thing. A uh, donor came to us. In this case, Mike Stansberry from Metro Aviation uh, wanted to initiate this fund and perpetually fund it, and so uh, we um, started it along with uh, the um, Children's Scholarship. Uh, and Alan Wolf was the recipient this year for that. Uh, scholarship. And then how does someone apply for the MTLI scholarship and what are the criteria? Um, it's a, I think at that point, uh, the MTLI scholarship also has a set of rules. Um, it, that is a bit needs based and that the program can't, uh, you know, the, usually the programs are not funding MTLI, uh, and in, in, in the case of the recipients. So, uh, there is some rules and it is have, that does have some needs based criteria, I believe. And was it this year, the first year for that? Actually, I think this is the second year. Second year, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have uh, Megan Hamilton and Teresa Pearson and Krista Hagen uh, from the Survivors Network on the podcast next week. But recently, you personally initiated a fund to support their work, and I think that came out uh, of the uh, mid-year, Ames mid-year meeting. Tell us more about this and what influenced your decision. Well, I didn't have a chance to, to see these ladies are really quality individuals and, and uh, have all been involved in air medical crashes and survived. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're a group that is bigger, actually, than the people who have, have died. Dave, I think they've identified almost 450 crash survivors from uh, air medical crashes. Uh, and they... I, you know, Sandra Kincaid sent me uh, something to read, which was kind of the, their scripts from uh, their AMTC presentation. And, you know, I, I was one of those things. I got to it and read it, and I just went, wow, this is huge. We are totally not um, – I w really wasn't aware at, at the level of post-traumatic stress that these crash victims are going through. Um, and, you know, it just, it was, it was really phenomenal how, you know, they'd all kind of do the same thing. They, you know, finish the crash, they get through their, you know, whatever recovery from injuries or they had, uh, and they'd try to get back. And, you know, I, I think Megan said, you know, I cow, cowboy cowgirled up and got back in the helicopter, but little things would trigger this post-traumatic stress responses, anything from, you know, seeing the fence that they crashed on and things like that. And so, when I got to really hear them in person at the mid-year meeting, uh, I was really moved. And I said, you know, this is something we have to fund. We have to start, uh, you know, giving these people some resources. Because even without resources, they'd already formed an electronic, you know, um, uh, support group. Uh, and we're playing it back, you know, playing it forward to each other, uh, helping each other, co contacting new, cr new crash survivors and, and doing just great work, but they were doing it without, uh, you know, some organizational uh, efforts and some and funding. And so uh, I didn't plan on, on funding it 
uh, at the meeting. But um, when I after I heard him, I just got up there and said, "Look, fundraising starts, and you know, fundraising is done in concentric circles, and the boards in the you know the center of the circle. Well, the chairman has got to throw down first because I'm at the very center of the circle, and so um, I uh, put five thousand dollars to it uh, to get the fund started." Um, and kind of drag the rest of the foundation board in with me, and I, I hope they're support. They're I know they're supportive. Um, um, they're they're a great group, and so um, I, I took liberty in just starting a fund. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and I congratulate you on that. I got to meet uh, uh, Megan, Teresa, and Krista at the AMTC conference. Uh, Tammy Chapman introduced uh, me to them, and then we met with them again through the Ames uh, Communications and Public Relations Committee. And I, same thing. I was just totally blown away. I said, we've really missed this area. We've concentrated on other things. And uh, some of the stories they told about, you know, how people treated them differently, how they were just a regular crew member and how they were treated differently coming back. People don't know whether to talk to them or not talk to them. And really the support that's needed for programs and for, for individuals. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's great, Kevin. That you got that going. Yeah, they, they, it just it, it the post traumatic stress is not immediate. It's something that just kind of wears them down over time. Most of them have to leave the the profession um, because they just yes. can't be that close to it anymore. Um, but you know, I'm really impressed with what's happening in in treatment of post traumatic stress uh, from the military experience in Iraq. Um, they've been developing some fantastic uh, tools, some of which I think you'd love, Ed, because they were electronic. I I got <laughs> to see this thing called Virtual Iraq, where they would simulate things that stimulated uh, post traumatic stress responses. They'd simulate it over and over and over again until um, you know the the patients. Uh, mind just got so used to it that they didn't, uh, they weren't uh, alerted or scared or had that fight or flight response uh, when they saw it again. And, and that's kind of where this at. I mean, every day we all do things that are potentially, you know, could cause us, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress. I mean, driving on a two-lane road head on with somebody, why don't we respond when we have that car in the other lane? Because we're used to it. So we've got to get these people, uh, we've got to figure out a more effective way to address this uh, aspect because it's not just in the crash survivors it's in the patients it's in you know sometimes it's in the crews that that don't get in the crash but you know see something just horrific and and you know in my own process i've had four people that i are first uh, are very close to me including chuck Acheski, who's the president of golden hour uh, all been flown and uh, i can't pretend that doesn't affect me it, that you know this resource is just too important to uh to some patients mm-hmm and it hit, it hit it definitely hits home. Yeah. Well, and uh you've heard Jonathan Godfrey's story too and I know he's involved uh with that group but uh, I just can't imagine he, I had him on an early earlier podcast and I was just uh I, I couldn't believe what he had gone through with that yeah. crash. Yeah. And he, you know, he is uh he is definitely still working through his thing and and the three of them uh the ladies took him down to where the rescue boat had picked him up um you know had brought him in and that was kind of a big thing to you know yeah. go down and and reface where you know it all happened again he hadn't been able to do that in 3 or 4 years since yeah. his crash so i think they have a big potential to help each other yeah and and as i said i think it's important that we have tools uh, for the administration of programs, for other crew members on how to deal with this too. 
because I, I think some people just retreat and they don't, you know, want to talk about it or, they, you know, are uncomfortable on when to talk about things with the individual that was involved. So you're, ab you're absolutely right. It's kind of the nature of the beast. We're, you know, in medicine, we're all trained to, to uh, you know, um, man up or woman up, you know, and, and not, uh, not feel. Um, but, you know, we all know that, that, that that's a, a great thing immediately, but down the road, we still you know, carry stuff with us. So we need to be able to express those things. Absolutely. Well, what other programs is the foundation looking at to uh, in supporting? Well, we're looking at an annotated bibliography of, uh, of research related to appropriate utilization uh, and uh, time in, in time critical illness so that we have some of our major donors are, are having lots of reimbursement challenges and need a compendium of research documents that can um, be used to uh, support um, the, you know, why our medical transports is so important. That's one project we're doing. Um, we are uh, actively reworking the white paper that was just discussed uh, at our recent board meeting. Um, and we have a couple of, of uh, projects which we've had to back burner be just because of funding. Uh, we've, uh, you know, gone through the recession like everybody else and get, raising money has been very difficult. I think the other uh, projects that, though, that we have been funding our, uh, our international global forums. These are our uh, uh, meetings where we bring in selected guest speakers and we invite our uh, international donors as well as uh, international community uh, to a roundtable discussion. Uh, and these have been extremely successful. And they're held at every AMTC uh, and at every AirMed conference, which occurs every three years. And the next one will be held in Brighton, England in May at AirMed 2011. Let's see. Have, have there been, you talked about uh, EHAC and ISIS, have, have there been other formal agreements or, or are there formal agreements with those organizations in doing international fundraising? Well, actually, what we've done is we've uh, developed two liaison positions um, on uh, the foundation board uh, with those organizations. Ian Batum is uh, uh, our liaison from ISIS um, down in Australia. Uh, and then Pavel Mueller is from uh, uh, EHAC. He's an EHAC board member. Uh, and so those have been our, our formal uh, liaisons. Um, we are in the process of uh, – Ames has signed a memorandum of understanding with both of those organizations. And so we, we are linked through that memorandum currently, but we're actually going to form our own memorandum with them. And we are um, um, actively more now uh, uh, promoting the foundation with the, at those organizational events. In fact, uh, when I – uh, I'm going to uh, Europe next month. Uh, I'm going to be promoting that at uh, the Riga conference in Switzerland, uh, as well as at the AirMed planning meeting, um, uh, which is occurring uh, in Munich. So um, we're we're actively uh, developing those relationships, developing, getting them on our committees, uh, as well as uh, trying to get them stimulated to start uh, submitting research abstract or research projects as well. I see. Yeah, I had uh, Hayden Newton from the Association of Air Ambulances in England or the UK uh, uh, on the show last week too. So that might oh. be another another one. Uh, I'm always just amazed at how um, they their system is is 
a lot alike ours, but then very different in how they do fundraising and support their programs. You know, yeah, I've, I've studied England quite a bit, um, yeah. and, and uh, uh, David Philpot was the uh, director of uh, of AirMed 2011. He's uh, was went to London Air Ambulance and now as a consultant. But uh, they have completely funded Air Ambulance there on charitable donations from the public right. uh, and from organizations. It's really a fantastic system, although it it, it does have to uh, depend on. Uh, on the public, you know, continuing to donate. So uh, even in a recession, they've they've been able to do okay, though. So I think yes. it's an interesting way of funding it. Uh, you you did say that the economy here has, uh, I guess it's really international, uh, with the recession has been an issue in raising funds. Has that improved recently? Uh, a little bit. Um, I think you know there was a couple of things that that uh, that we raised uh, about uh, three point seven million dollars uh, in in donations, many of which come in over time, uh, and so uh, we had money coming in that it was still coming in uh, over the last year. We did a uh, change in our fundraising officer, uh, hired Leanna in November, uh, Leanna Jackson, and so um, we really had at a period of time where fundraising was just being done by the volunteer board members. Um, and we really needed to, uh, get somebody to kind of get us organized and get us motivated and things like that. It is, it is a, a bit of a cheerleading exercise to get people to raise money because it's not something everybody's comfortable with. Um, I think from my own experience, I wasn't comfortable with it initially, but once you get, uh, get out there and, and raise money, you do pretty well. It, it's pretty easy. And it, people, uh, it, you actually get to speak with a lot of great people. Yes. Well, and I see too, that, uh, Air Methods Corporation just made a major pledge. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, that was actually fantastic. Um, uh, Chris Zoller and myself and Leanna Jackson met with uh, Aaron Todd uh, in January, I believe, uh, or early February. And, and uh, we talked to him and so had, they had been one of the people that had not donated yet. Uh, and he um, agreed to a $100,000 donation over four years. Uh, and that was uh, announced and completed at HAI in um, in late February. Yep, uh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, talk about some of the donor events. I, I know uh, <clears throat> from being at them, uh, from being a donor myself at the Air Medical Transport Conference, and I think you said uh, Air Med, uh, you also uh, do one. But uh, what are these exactly uh, used well, for? They're used. the The global forums are not typically used for fundraising. It's more friend raising. Um, uh, the events that we raise money at at the um, Air Medical Transport Conference are the silent auction. This year we'll have a golf tournament, um, and we are uh, we also raise money at various meetings, kind of uh, throwing the hat around. Um, we've raised money at the Great Debate. Uh, and we've uh, also, you know, brought awareness, and people have brought in their uh, their donations um, uh, for given hour and things like that at AMTC. We typically do pretty good at AMTC, but our big donors, uh, our chairman level donors, have really carried the water. And these are the the uh, original equipment manufacturers. Um, so, if I could, I'll tell you who the chairman donors are. Yes. Um, our chairman donors uh, are uh, uh, Augusta Westland, Bell Helicopters, um, Air, uh, let's see, American Eurocopter, uh, uh, Alpha Helicopters from the Czech Republic, Medi, um, and I think we have a couple more in there that I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Um, 
PHI Air Medical is there, and now Air Methods is there. Um, and so those are people who have donated over $100,000 uh, and um, I think our, our top donor at this point is uh, Bell Helicopter, who donated three hundred thousand um, dollars, and so that's been that, that's what's been able to to keep the foundation moving forward uh, in the early years. And now we're into another fundraising campaign, uh, and uh, we've raised money from um, Spectrum Aeromed uh, and a few others uh, at HAI. Um, got commitments from a few people. We're following up on. <clears throat> but we really just got to get out and start pounding the pavement and making more asks. And and it's nice to have all, all different types of donors because I, I know you mentioned the the given hour for um, individuals that are crew members at a at a program uh, can simply give give an hour uh, to the foundation. There's a lot of uh, individual level um, donors too that you have I know on the website and other places so That's right. uh, those are all important too well, but we're waiting for that first patron level donor at five hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh the question i had and i'm glad you mentioned the silent auction and and some of those fundraising but you also have an event for donors people that have given and usually there's a speech uh, at that um what i'm referring to is air medical transport conferences that's what is right. that used for? Um, we have a donor reception uh, that's held right before the banquet, and it's a, a reception where we bring in our major, all of our donors that are there, uh, and they uh, can network a little bit. And we have a, we usually will have a ten-minute um, lecture by uh, a couple of our researchers. Uh, last year, Tilo Hoshler with the ultrasound study got a standing ovation when he uh, described some of what what he's been able to do and. Um, you know, doing in, the, in this study that's being you know done right. in the helicopter in Germany, um, and then uh, we also will typically introduce the board and then thank our donors. Um, so it's really more friend raising. We're not directly fundraising at those those type of events, um, but we are fundraising and meeting with them at at the Air Medical Transport Conference. We do a lot of meetings at HAI as well, and then there's uh, conferences usually following up and things like that. And it's also a place that you can thank new donors, yeah. too. Right. Let me also add, Sikorsky uh, was one of our chairman donors. I don't want to miss anybody. Okay. Um, well, tell us a little bit about the board of directors of the foundation and how they're chosen and how this is different than, uh, I think, what most people understand with the election of the Association of Air Medical Services Board of Directors. That's right. Um, the The foundation board has evolved. Um, it, it early on was air medical people who had been on the Ames board or who had done um, uh, had been around the uh, leadership community, uh, and they came onto the foundation board um, both to get it going, uh, to provide their expertise, but also so that they could still be involved with the, the leadership uh, because the boards met together. Um, as our needs changed and evolved, we moved to a competency grid of specific types of competencies for a board member that we're looking for. So, for example, um, we may be looking for somebody who's got legal background or somebody who's got fundraising background or fundraising communications background. Um, and so, and as a position vacates, we will typically look for uh, something with that capability plus maybe another capability that we're deficient on. Um, we do have a uh, 
executive committee who um, is more industry insiders, people who have had a little more history, um, because that executive committee tends to be involved with a lot of the, the fundraising asks and also carries the continuity of the foundation and the continuity in the eyes of the donor. Um, and so typically they go through their, their full uh, terms. At the end of the term, which now is three three-year terms, um, we uh, will term out and then we have a succession plan in place. Um, currently, the board of directors is, is uh, heavily weighted to fundraising um, and also to uh, people who are involved with uh, programmatic um, uh, areas or in communications and things like that. So, our, you know, our current uh, board members are a pretty diverse group and they're not the typical air medical group. In fact, some of that changeover has has caused us to reevaluate our, our meeting agenda so that such that um, we're not uh, dealing with AIMS issues that are fairly mundane to uh, people who are brought in specifically to raise money. Um, so we've uh, we've focused their efforts um, at our meetings uh, to a great degree. Mm -hmm. And so, but there are terms they're appointed. Um, at, what is the? Can they be reappointed? Yeah. They can be after a year, uh, of, after they termed out. Um, the mechanism is such that you uh, submit your name to uh, Christine Zoller, who's vice chair, uh, and Chris is the chair of the nominating committee. <clears throat> and Chris will inform the foundation board, uh, prospective board member, about what their responsibilities are, um, what their, you know, uh, there'll be a discourse about what their capabilities are, and then we see whether they fit into our competency grid. Um, you know, we, we, everybody raises money. And so having some fundraising experience, although not required, is definitely a plus. Um, but we've also, uh, and, and Christine anyway, vets the, uh, the applicant and then we'll bring it to the full board once they've agreed that they want to run and, um, our, our be part of the foundation. We also bring in a lot of these people are coming off of our foundation committees too. In fact, it's kind of the way to find out whether you really want to be involved with the foundation is to work on one of the committees. Um, and so we've had several people that have been promoted up from committee work. Oh, excellent. Well, I know we're getting close to the end, but I had a couple other questions. What is the measure of success that the board uses on whether the foundation has been successful? Well, I don't think we've sat down and said we'll be successful when. Um, I think what we're going to do is we've looked at it kind of as a uh, we're always approaching success, but we're never quite there. Um, and we keep, you know, obviously fundraising, we have some specific goals um, for fundraising. We would love to become an endowed foundation that, that could, uh, you know, handle the uh, routine research, you know, um, Grants. If we had more money, we would definitely pump it into more research. We had one. We have one project sitting on the back burner, which is uh, is basically looking at um, the benefit to healthcare systems of having a helicopter uh, there to you know link time dependent care and you know the whole downstream of having high volume care done in fewer places. Um, you know we would do that study in a minute if we had a donor for it. Um, and some of those things we we raise money specifically for a project. Um, so measuring success is kind of nebulous, but it, it, I think you know if we're able to to fund our projects fully uh, and and we're able to uh, you know keep all the grant the the fund the uh, fund 
the, the outreach projects, the family grant fund uh, funded. I mean, all those things uh, are taking dollars. And then um, lastly, I think, you know, we've got to keep our, our two positions um, um, paid for and funded as well. And so, you know, we those are also kind of nebulous success markers at this point. But Long term, we want to be, you know, self-sustaining, uh, generating lots of quality research and, and something that's uh, a household name in a lot of different places. Right. What are the plans for the future for the foundation? What do you see in, let's say, five years from now? Well, I, I think right now we're in a, in a status where we are really focused on fundraising. Um, I think we're going to stay in that status for the next uh, foreseeable two, three years, probably even longer. Um, I don't think we're going to build a lot more programs right now, although we, we you know, did initiate a new fund, thanks to me. But, uh, I, you know, I do think we, we've got to really focus our efforts on what we can do with the money we have. Um, and uh, I think that you're going to see us not doing a ton of expansion for the next couple of years. I'm hoping, though, that with the recession ending and, uh, and you know, transport becoming a little more uh, – uh, stable funding-wise in terms of healthcare reforms, you know, uh, change things, and, and uh, it looks like it's not going to affect us too bad. Um, you know, I think the more stable the industry is, the more stable the foundation and the more successful the foundation will be. So, you know, a lot of it depends on, on the, the, the uh, community's success. Well, I know I could sit and talk with you for probably another hour, but uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners about the the Medevac International Foundation? Well, I think the the biggest thing I'd like to take away is is that we're a very committed group of volunteers that have done a a a, a lot of work um, to get this foundation through. Uh, so it's tumultuous teenage years, and now we're ready to really uh, raise some money and do it and and, and grow it and get it sustainable. Uh, and so, you know, every dollar helps. Um, it's very easy to donate for the foundation. We have a secure website. You put it on a credit card, believe me, it's painless. Um, I'd really uh, appreciate it if everybody went to the website and, and made a contribution uh, to the foundation. I think you can see we've done good work, and we're going to continue to do good work. Our donors are re-donating because they know we've done the work we needed to do. Um, the other thing I should add that we've uh, one of the thing, other programs we funded, uh, we funded an AIMS program outside of the process uh, called Vision Zero. Most people, I think, are pretty com uh, familiar with. But this has been a project that uh, Jonathan Godfrey's taken up and really done a fantastic job with. Uh, and I'd like to see us really be able to, to fund that in a better, bigger way. But we, we really, in this day and age, we had to, we had to pull back um, from funding it uh, fully. And so, you know, this is all economics at this point. Right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. And also, thank you so much for your leadership, support, and the many, many hours that you volunteer for the Medevac Foundation International. Well, it's a bit of a crusade, Ed. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Please remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. 
Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.